0: I wanted to do a little, something a little unusual this morning, or this afternoon, sorry. I wanted to take a biblical illustration of a truth and then uh, fill it out for you with some more doctrine. But we're going to start with an illustration in the Word of God. So if you'd please turn to Exodus, excuse me, Genesis chapter 26. Genesis 26. It's a passage that you kind of, you might be tempted to read and go, "Oh, that's nice, and not think about it much. In fact, I'm sure when I forwarded the information about the bulletin to Dennis and Josh and they looked at the title of the sermon, Isaac unstopped the wells that the Philistines had stopped up. You're right. That sounds edifying. Why? Okay. Chapter 26, beginning in verse 12. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Let me stop there by saying in ancient Israel... A hundredfold was an incredible harvest. You'd be thankful if you were a Midwestern farmer and got a hundredfold increase. And so here we, here's people in the ancient world getting a hundredfold increase because of the blessing of God that God had promised to Abraham and to Isaac. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks of sheep, herds of goats and camels and donkeys, And many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech, he was the leader of the Philistines, said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Imagine having somebody in your near neighborhood who is very wealthy, has maybe hundreds of servants, a lot of of uh, wealth in the form of herds and animals, and you become threatened by him, so you want him to move on. So, what do you do if you want people in a desert country to leave you? You stop up their wells, and they can't. There's no water. The people can't drink. The animals can't drink. That's all over. And so Isaac departed from there and then camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. I'll I'll stop there. We can continue to reading. The Philistines stopped up the wells. His men went and unstopped the wells. They re-dug the wells that had previously existed. They gave them the same names that his his father Abraham had given them. Now, this is not a lesson on uh, agronomy or meteorology or soil science, but it is a lesson of what I call sanctified common sense. In the Middle East, as well as every other place in the world, drinkable water is necessary for life. According to the United Nations and the World Health Organization, drinkable water, sometimes it says potable water on the side of a big truck, that means drinkable, most of the time it's non-potable water, is that potable water, clean water, is the number one issue facing the struggling peoples of the world. If you can find a clean source of water so that your kids don't get amoebic dysentery, so you don't get cholera, so you don't get a thousand one other waterborne diseases. Pure water means healthy people, healthy livestock. Polluted water means sick people, sick animals, and a blighted culture. In many parts of the world, if you want to do good works as a missionary, have an American well driller come over and on his vacation drill some clean wells for the people so they don't have to drink out of a muddy stream or a muddy pond. Ancient people were not stupid, unlike many of our professors and people in high places make it seem like the old-fashioned people. They were really stupid, but we're so smart today. Well, that's not true. The pagan inhabitants of Palestine, who were the Philistines, tried to get rid of Abraham and his family by clogging up the wells so they couldn't be used again. So what do you throw down a well to stop it up? Well, you push as much dirt as you can find, maybe some rocks that were around the mouth of the well. Throw sticks, debris, a dead animal. That's even better. Chuck it in there because once the well's polluted, you're just not going to drink out of that well. Once the Philistines had finished their work, neither man nor beast could drink from these wells. The sources of life had dried up. They were unusable. There was no pure water. That meant the people of God had to move somewhere else because they couldn't find drinkable water there. And you go, okay, I get the illustration, so what's the point? Well, let's take what Isaac went through, and let's apply it to ourselves in a minute. Sanctified common sense dictates that you return to the places that yielded pure water in the past. the past, you... Return to those places that had blessed your people in the past. Why would you go looking for new water if you knew where fresh drinkable water was, if you can unstop the well and somehow clean it out, you knew that it had worked for your family in the past? We're not talking about a well with two or three gallons a day. We're talking about digging wells that flocks and herds and families could drink from. You don't go looking for new water if you know where there's old water that's accessible if you take the time and energy to clean it up. These wells had once sustained Abraham and his family. He had scores, a score is 20, so scores is 40, 60, 80 hired men, hundreds of animals. He was tremendously blessed by the Lord. They could all find drinkable water in these wells. If you can help it, you don't go looking for new wells because you might dig a dry shaft. If you've ever known people in the well drilling business, you can, dr- you can drop a dry shaft. You can drop... A well, you can drop a pipe down that doesn't hit water. So in this case, if you have to dig a well by hand, you don't want to do it if you have to if you can go back and find a well that's already there that you just need to clean out. So how does this apply to anything you're asking? Well, let's look at American Christianity. Let's look at Baptist today and see if there's anything about stopped-up wells that need to be unclogged and what the solution would be from God's word. So I'm going to take you on a little bit of a whirlwind, so if you have a seatbelt, please put it across your waist because we're going to fly fast. But if, if you've been a Christian very many years and if you've traveled around and tried to find a good church, you'll know something what I'm talking about. But American Christianity is under siege. It's not under siege from atheism. It's not under siege from the liberal elites in the media or in the universities. It's under siege and it's in a dire strait because, it's, because bit by bit the truth has been given up for decades. Those who are called the guardians of the truth, the so-called evangelicals and conservative Baptists, have not held the line. They've given in to the spirit of the age, the demands of their surrounding culture, and so you have all kinds of false doctrines, false gospels, and false hopes preached in average churches today. You could probably attend... I'll be kind. Seventy-five percent of the churches in the metropolitan area, and most of them would not have the gospel. Oh, they'd tell you you ought to do better... They tell you you ought to be having a better family and you ought to be a better person. They ought even tell you you need to be a better Christian. But how many of these churches still hold on to the historic gospel? How many of these churches would you ever hear the gospel in? We'll come back to that. Let me give you a list of some of what I call well stoppers, people who have clogged the wells, that generations of Christians since the beginning have trusted in, and show you a little bit, briefly, how this affects your lives. I, when I lived in Atlanta, metropolitan Atlanta is about the size, population-wise, of Dallas-Fort Worth, 7 million people. And I'd get a phone call, hi, I've moved to Atlanta from Raleigh or Charleston or someplace in the south, and I bought a really nice home over here, and can you tell me of a good church there? No. What? There's 7 million people here. Well, I know there's a lot of people here, but there's not a lot of good churches here. There are not a lot of churches that I would want to entrust my eternal soul and my, or my immortal soul and my family too. Well, uh, uh, you know, and I wanted to say, you know, you might have checked out the churches before you bought your fancy home because now you're stuck in a neighborhood where you're going to have to drive a to find a decent church. But these well-stoppers have affected all parts of America. First one, theological liberalism. Yeah, what's that? Well, I've heard of that. It's skepticism and unbelief wearing religious clothes. It's a man who looks like a minister... But he doesn't believe the Bible. He doesn't believe the Bible is the word of God. He doesn't, in fact, what he's known for is what he doesn't believe. There's not a literal creation out of nothing in six days. Miracles didn't happen. Christ isn't really God. He's the highest man, best man who ever lived. No, his death on the cross wasn't a substitutionary sacrifice. It was an example of how we ought to live. No, the resurrection didn't happen, and on and on and on it goes. I can even remember sitting in a classroom taught by liberal professors who had gone to some of the most academically famous places in America and they were going through the Old Testament and saying this and this and this and this didn't happen. And I can remember thinking as a non-Christian going, okay, I get it, you don't believe this stuff. But why do you do it for a living? I mean, does IBM or DuPont or um, Lockheed, do they hire people to debunk their own product? but people who masquerade as Christians go around seeking to tear down Christianity. Churches that have been eaten up by liberalism, the United Methodist, the Northern Baptist, the Disciples of Christ, the Episcopalians, you can name several once former large denominations have been emptied. Imagine if you're a businessman and you used to control 80% of the market, but since 1960, liberal denominations have lost 90% of their people. 90% 90% of their people don't go to their churches anymore. You know, you're, you're not a kid sitting on a motorcycle going, I just wish I could go to a liberal seminary and teach this garbage. You don't grow up in a liberal churches wishing you could become a minister and preach. You ought to try harder. That doesn't happen. Liberal seminaries are almost empty. If they hadn't okayed the ordination of women and all kinds of other people, there would be nobody in liberal seminaries. I visited several to do research, and there's nobody there. But there's another well stopper, and you don't need to know the names, but I'll tell you, Neo-Orthodoxy. Neo-Orthodoxy. You go, well, it sounds clever. Neo means new, orthodoxy means the straight truth. It was something that came along in 1919 and continued for 100 years, and it's the idea that came along that we're going to use the same words that traditional Christians have used, but we're going to take a giant hypodermic needle, a syringe, and we're going to suck the traditional understanding of that word out, and we're going to insert a new definition. The Bible isn't the word of God, but it contains the word of God. And the Bible is not infallible or inerrant, but when it speaks to you when you're having your devotions or when someone's preaching and it really seems to hit home, that's the word of God. The rest of the time, it, it ain't so. Now it's interesting, for, for a while it styled, it, it styled itself different things. It even actually called itself the Word of God theology. But it was pointed out in 1970 by a leader of American evangelicalism, Carl Henry. He said, for all of its avowed commitment to the Word of God, neo-Orthodoxy has never, this is true 100 years now, has never produced a single evangelist Some man who the Holy Spirit blesses with converting power when he speaks to the masses. It's never produced a single person who can preach with power to the masses. Why? Why is the Holy Spirit so discriminating? Because they've lost the truth and they've lost the gospel. There's other ones some of you might have been in at one time. Now again, when I bring up things and I might bring up something that you might have come out of and you go, why did you say my mother was ugly? I'm not going to talk about your mother and I'm not going to say your mother was ugly but if I mention a place you used to live theologically and you kind of go oh yeah, well don't take personal offense, I'm not attacking any individual I'm talking about the system of doctrine something called classic dispensationalism God has two agendas, he has Israel, but that didn't go well so plan B was the church if Israel in the first century had accepted Christ, then there would be no need for the church, but that didn't happen the law of God is not binding today. That was an Old Testament reality. Christians don't have to obey the Ten Commandments. <laughs> Escape. Oh. Justification by faith alone is not preached exactly as it had been historically understood. In fact, for all the Baptist churches across the South and the Midwest that accepted dispensationalism, the only part of dispensation, oh, excuse me, the only part of justification by faith that you'll hear is Christ died for your sins. End of story. What's wrong with that? Well, that's half the gospel. I need payment for my sins. But if you're totally bankrupt and someone pays off your debt, that brings you up to zero. But to be in the presence of God, you need positive righteousness. You don't have positive righteousness and neither do I. But Christ's righteousness is given to the believing sinner. Christ obeyed all the laws of God 24-7, 365, his entire life, and his perfect life, his record of righteousness is counted to, imputed to, the believing sinner. That was not believed in classic dispensationalism, so that went out the door, and so the only thing you'll hear is Christ died for your sins. So you limp along the rest of your life wishing you were a better Christian, but not able to, to, to capitalize on the imputed righteousness of Christ. The carnal Christian view of sanctification has been popularized in that circles. It's gotten so bad that now a third-generation member of this kind of theology has come out with a book and has a section in there, can I marry my sister? You go, well, certainly. Well, see, it's not forbidden in the New Testament, so it's okay. Because the Old Testament has no value for Christians today, so he actually teaches you can marry your sister. And I confronted somebody who was of this position. He, oh, that guy, he's just kind of crazy. Well, I'm sorry, it's a published book. It's out there for public... Distribution and people are to believe it, and that's heresy. In fact, no state government in America, every state has laws of consanguinity or common blood. How close a relative can you marry? First cousins, usually as close as you can get. Well, he's saying you can marry your sister. The Bible would call that incest and an abomination. Health and wealth theology. Most of the largest churches in America are led by some of the richest men in America because they teach that wealth is a sign of God's blessing. If you look into the life of Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes, and many other men like this and their teaching, they reign as kings over kingdoms of wealth and opulence as they manipulate people. It's taking the third world by storm. I got an email from a leading pastor in Africa, in uh, Zimbabwe, who told me about how it's eating up people in Zimbabwe because they're told, God wants you rich, He wants you healthy and wealthy. And in countries where so many people struggle with sickness and so many people struggle with poverty, a gospel that God's main purposes for you are health and wealth catches on like crazy. Unfortunately, it's not true because you can be healthy and wealthy. And on Judgment Day, if you don't have your sins atoned for and if you don't have the righteousness of Christ, you will go to hell in your wealth and your health. The openness of God theology, you go, I don't, I'm not sure I've heard of that. I've heard of Benny Hinn and Joel Osteen and these guys who... They need a new jet every couple of years because the ashtrays are full of their old jet, and so they need to replenish their jet. But the openness of God theology came along in the 1990s. And this this is more subtle, and the people who have bought into it, you wouldn't recognize it unless you were exposed to it and knew what to look for, but you'll hear it in funerals, you'll hear it from pulpits. God doesn't know the future because he's caught up in the flux of history, and the future hasn't happened yet. So a poor God can't say for sure what's going to happen, He's not sovereign over time and eternity. The promises of God and the word of God are at best probabilities. Clark Pinnock, who was a leader in the Southern Baptist seminaries and taught bounced around from different schools, former conservative Baptist pastor theologian Gregory Boyd and a legion of disciples work this out in their ministries, their pulpits, when they do funerals, when they write books. God is caught up in the flux of history. And he, doesn't, he feels your pain, but he can't do a thing about it. You know, I don't want a God who feels my pain. I want a God who's in control, and that's the God of the Bible. Another well-stopper which has really messed people up is Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement. Now you say, well, my Uncle Harry's a charismatic, and my grandmother was a Pentecostal minister. I'm not attacking individuals But for both of these schools of thought, the sign of being filled with the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues and prophesying. And they teach there's bodily healing in the atonement. Not all health and wealth preachers are Pentecostals, but so many of the health and wealth preachers are Pentecostals because they believe there's healing in the atonement. By his stripes we are healed. But it's not talking in Isaiah 53 about you being physically sick. It's talking about you being sick unto death spiritually before God. There's out of this movement, the third wave, so to speak, has come the signs and wonders movement. Did you know, according to their teaching, a a preaching of the word of God is not authentic unless people are being healed in the service and miracles are taking place? And after that, there was the Toronto blessing from the Vineyard Church in Toronto, California. The theology was put forward that if you're really filled with the Spirit, you'll be controlled with overpowering laughing. And I watched a video on television of the leader of this movement in the Church of Richard Roberts, Oral Roberts' son, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And he proceeded to walk back and forth. And this guy was doing his thing. Congregation looked like 1,500, 2,000. Half a dozen people began to chuckle, and then people began to laugh. And by the time he was through, I only saw half a dozen people that weren't either lying in their pews or lying on the floor laughing. And this is the true sign of God's blessing being among them. And they bought it hook, line, and sinker. Now, thankfully, that same movement didn't spread its other false teaching. They had the uh, animal noises blessing where you made sounds like a rooster or a chicken or a cow or a dog barking. That was a sign of being filled with the Spirit. That didn't catch on. And the worst one, which didn't catch on, and you can see why, is that the last vestiges of sin within you are vomited up if you throw up in the service would you really want to be in a service where everybody's throwing up I think not so that didn't catch on thankfully so there's a little bit of sanctified common sense but this whole idea of these kinds of crazy things you know Paul talks about when insanity reigns in a local church he said if a non-christian comes in your midst and he sees how you're acting God is dishonored he's gonna think you're mad he's gonna think that the God that you serve is not a God of decency and of order There's another well-stopper that's been called the church growth movement. God wants your church big. Obviously, God hasn't been with you because there should be several thousand people here. You should not look for a Bible preacher and a shepherd as your new pastor. You want to look for somebody who will be a CEO and he will take this church to new heights and he will market this church and manage this church until it becomes a great church. Church Church members are worker bees in this Christian CEO's corporate growth strategy. A friend of mine was visiting the largest church in the Northeast quadrant of Atlanta, over 10,000 members. It was a Southern Baptist church. He, he, talked, he went to visit his friend, who was the assistant pastor, and the secretary showed him in, and she said, he's in a meeting, he'll be with you shortly. And as he waited, he noticed there was a huge book on the guy's desk, and it was a college textbook. But you know, one of the best ways of making money this day, these days is producing college textbooks. Because they, they ask you an arm and a leg for something to be done a lot cheaper. But here's this big, fat book on marketing. And so my friend was flipping through it. And when his other friend, the associate pastor, came in, he goes, Oh, I saw this big book on your desk. What's with this? He goes, Oh, the whole staff, we're studying that together, how to market this church. And he goes, Well, uh, don't we have the Bible? Oh, come on, Kurt. That's an old-fashioned book for the old times. We need to get with the times. We need a new gospel for a new millennium. Now, Kurt offered to teach a Bible study class on Wednesday nights when they had their Wednesday night meetings. They offered 60 different meetings on Wednesday nights. Scuba diving, macrame, skiing, uh, Pilates, I mean, through the gamut of things. And when Kurt showed up to teach his class on Bible study, only one person showed up. And she was grossed out. She said, really? In a church of 10,000 people, I'm the only one who wants to learn how to study their Bible? And you've got 59 other subjects and other things that are full of people? But that's, the, the wisdom of that group is that you don't grow a church by being faithful to Scripture. You grow a church by marketing it. And that leads me to my last point, the eighth well-stopper, broad evangelicalism's fascination with consumerism. The way you grow any business is by giving people what, you, what they want. You, you, and this is out of the horse's mouth. I've listened to the seminars. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about holiness. Don't talk about repentance. Don't talk about judgment. Don't talk about hell. Don't talk about hard topics. People don't want these things. They're off-putting to them. Instead, you're to give life situation sermons to show how Jesus will enhance their life and meet their felt needs. At this seminar in 1991, I attended at a meeting room at the Atlanta airport, attended by 300 people, and the only thing sadder than the content of what this man was giving was the fact that 300 people were sitting there taking notes and acting like this was the greatest thing since sliced bread. Evangelical guru George Barna said, For too long the churches have been product-driven. What are the demands of the gospel? If it's going to grow and succeed, it needs to become market-driven what does the religious consumer want? And one lady during a queue and I stuck up her hand, and I was so frustrated and so mad at this shell game that this guy was conning these people with. This one lady raised her hand and she said, let me get this right. We're going to have designer jeans, and now we have designer churches, and we're going to fit into what an unsaved Harry and Sally want. This is terrible. He says, ma'am, I'm sorry, you've misunderstood me. I've not been talking about theology today. I've been talking about methodology. Next question. He just pulled a fast one. He was talking about theology. He was talking about what message you give the people. He said you need to take the cross off your building. You need to work on your shrubbery. You need to work on your grounds. You need to have a vast coffee area. Holy grounds that you can have offer people so that non-Christians will feel comfortable when they come. In fact, you don't have Sunday morning. is not for non-Christians. Excuse me, it's not for Christians. It's for non-Christians. We're going to style everything on Sunday to invite non-Christians. And if you're a Christian, you can go back on Thursday or something. We'll have, a message, we'll have a session for you. Now, there's many more I could add, but these eight are sad enough to put this sad and dangerous situation into stark relief. Let's look at the things from another angle. What are the historic doctrines of Christianity that are up for grabs in our generation? They're either being attacked they're being altered or they're just flat being given up. Now, you may be tempted to say, you're being kind of unduly negative, aren't you? No, I'm being frank. I'm being honest. I've been out there. I was converted in Indiana. I served as a young Christian in Los Angeles. Then I went back to Indianapolis. Then I went to Atlanta. Then I went to Chicago. Then I went back to Atlanta. Now I'm in Dallas. I've been around, I've been in several countries. And they're learning as hard as they can from American Christianity. I had a pastor in Africa say, "I received an email saying from a group in Zimbabwe or Zambia, Zambia. They said uh, our worship team needs new electronic equipment. Our our speakers are getting old. We need new electric guitars. Three thousand dollars could cover it. Should cover it. Will you help us out?" And I forwarded it to my friend who was a pastor in that country, and I, I said, "Forgive us for exporting our garbage around the world." He says, forgive us for believing it. It's going around the world. The doctrine of God is under attack. I was thrilled to hear that you're going to study Pink's book on the attributes of God. But the doctrine of God is under attack in our lifetime. Like I said, one group doesn't believe that God knows the future because he's stuck in history. And God's not sovereign. And God's not holy. And all the various historical attributes of God revealed into the scriptures, captured in the ancient creeds and confessions of the church and believed by the church for 2,000 years, are under attack in our lifetime. Now, we know that liberals don't believe these things because they don't believe the Word of God. But people who teach in evangelical Bible colleges and Christian liberal arts colleges and in seminaries are some of the ones teaching it. There is a professor teaching at the undergraduate version of a local seminary, and he taught his students that God has a body. God does not have a body. That's an ancient heresy that the church throughout the window in the third century, and only Mormons believe that. Well, he was teaching that in his class. The Word of God is under attack in every generation because if I can undermine the Word of God, there's nothing for the sheep of God to feed on. There's no good food. Well, the Word of God is constantly under attack. It may be true, but it's not sufficient. You need to buttress the Word of God with psychology, sociology, anthropology, some kind of ology. The Bible isn't enough to feed and sustain the people of God. The doctrine of creation is under attack in evangelical and reformed colleges and seminaries. There's only a couple of one, two, three, four, five reformed seminaries that believe God created the world in six days. The other reformed seminaries, some of which have fairly good reputations, have given in to other alternative theories about how God came up with reality. The doctrine of providence is under attack. God doesn't really sit in control of all that happens. He's responding. He's playing chess with people, and he's responding. The doctrine of humanity. What does it mean to be a human? Do I invent my own reality? You know, I've told some people tongue-in-cheek. I may look like 71-year-old Steve Martin, but I'm actually a 28-year-old bodybuilder named Thor, and you better believe it, and if you don't believe it and say say anything against me, I'm going to sue you for hate speech. You go... Buddy, you're crazy. You're living in la la land. You're not a 28 year old bodybuilder. Who says? People in our culture today, you can create your own reality. I'm not a man, although I may have the body of a man. I'm not a woman, I may have the body of a woman. People are creating their own reality. I used to say that refusing to submit to your role in your marriage is about the most fundamental rebellion you can have against God, but we've gone one step further. You can't tell me that I'm a man or a woman if I don't want to be a man or a woman. I determine my own reality. Folks, that's just not crazy, but that's heresy. And that will ruin you for time and eternity. But that's out there. The doctrine of Christ's person. Is he the God-man? Well, maybe, but then they start tearing away at Christ's deity. What did he accomplish on the cross? That's under attack. Well, how how is a person saved? Do you know what the dominant religion among evangelicals in America is? Moralistic, therapeutic, deism. You go, that sounds clever. M, moralistic, therapeutic, T, deism, D, M, T, D. Moralistic. God saves those who help themselves. If you work hard enough, like so many sermons on Sunday, five steps to keep your kids on your team on Monday morning. Right. And so what does that have to do with being a Christian? I could get that in a pop psychology book. I want to know how to go to heaven and be close to God in the meantime. You're not going to hear it in so many churches. Moralistic, therapeutic. God wants you to live a good life. He wants you to try your hardest. And it's, God will only intervene if you need real help. So tell him your needs and he, he won't bother you. But if you need help, the therapy part comes in. He'll rescue you. And deism, for the most part, God's disengaged from your life, and you have to work it out yourself. The studies have shown that that's what the vast majority of students in youth groups in the 90s believed. So where do you think the kids in the youth groups of the 90s are today? If they're still in church, they're in churches believing this kind of stuff. The doctrine of sanctification. How do you become a mature Christian? How do you grow in grace? Can you just get a zap from heaven and you don't need to worry about growing because you got the zap and you spoke in some, some language you didn't understand? Do you have to perform miracles? Do you have to give prophecies? What about the doctrine of the family? Has the doctrine of the family been under attack? It used to be that the culture reinforced what Protestants believed, in fact, what Catholics believed too in their Bibles. But in the last 40 years, the doctrine of the family has been severely under attack. Nobody tells me what to do. I'm not going to submit to him. Well, Fooey on her. I'm not going to play this game. I'll just divorce her and live for myself, and she can live with the kids in alimony. Has the doctrine of the family been under attack, even in churches? Uh, one of the largest churches in Atlanta, my friend left the church over this, but he said there was in the young couple's class, there was a couple, and the, one the husband committed adultery with another woman and divorced his wife. And she kept coming to the class because those, that was the only friends she had in the church. But the leaders of the class, and the church never disciplined the husband for divorcing his wife and committing adultery. But they did ask her to leave the young couple's class because she wasn't married anymore, so she couldn't be in the young couple's class. What is the doctrine of the church? Uh, me and Jesus with my Bible under a tree. That's the church. You all are unnecessary. I can do this Christianity thing without you all. That's not true. The New Testament knows nothing of individualistic, solitary, I-do-my-own-thing Christianity. In fact, you can't find anybody in the New Testament who wasn't a church member who was addressed in any of the epistles. People weren't just floating around doing their own thing and checking into church once in a while. They were all committed to their local churches. The doctrine of the sacraments are under attack. Some churches have a do-it-yourself. They have a, like a salad bar to the side. And you can go up and serve yourself communion when you want to. Your kids can have communion. You can baptize your own kids if that's your thing. And the doctrine of the end times and the last things, certain evangelical leaders said they no longer believe in hell. You just get annihilated when you, when you die. You go, really? Is it that bad? Well, one of the things you would discover if you traveled around churches for about a year is how bad it is. We had a couple visit our church in Atlanta, and they said, man, we live an hour away, and we like your church, but... We'll see if we can do better closer to home. A year later, they came back and they go, you won't believe how bad it is out there. You won't believe the crazy things that are being taught. You won't believe what passes for biblical religion in our lifetime. I said, well, I know sometimes the people think I'm kind of negative, but I do understand what's going on out there. Do you know the Bible says that Christianity cannot be beaten by outside forces because God is on its side. When the churches hold fast to their Lord, God will fight for them and he'll be their captain. But, if the church decides it wants to disobey God, give up the truth and go after other gods, then God himself will be fighting against those who profess to be his people. We all memorize as kids the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. And what does it go on to say about this shepherd? He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. But what if the church says, I don't want to be on that path and I don't want to be righteous and I want to it's all about me not about you. Well, bad times are ahead. The Bible teaches that the Spirit of God works with the written Word of God to guide and feed the people of God in this dark world. What happens when the churches leave the paths of righteousness and go over to strange paths and ways that the Lord in His Word says don't go there? Let's go to the book of Jeremiah and listen what the Old Testament. And God says in the Old Testament... Thus says the Lord, Jeremiah 6, 16 through 19. Stand by the roads and look and ask for the old paths or the ancient paths in some translations where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But the people said, we will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you telling you, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet when God warns you. But they said, we will not pay attention. And then now God calls in witnesses. Therefore, hear, O nations, and know, O congregation. He's speaking to the watching angelic congregation. Hear, O nations, know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their own devices, because they have not paid attention to my words, and as for my law, they have rejected it. I can be pious and I can show up at church and profess to be a Christian, but if I ignore, reject, blow off God's word, good things are not coming. In 2 Timothy, Paul is about to be executed for his crimes against the state of Rome. He's going to be beheaded. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, there's a passage of Scripture that I read for years, and I'm sure you've read it, but it didn't dawn on me until one day one verse popped out. Listen to the first five verses of 2 Timothy 3, As Paul describes what's coming forth, he says, But understand this, that in the last days, now he's not talking about 2,000 years from now, the last days began, according to the book of Hebrews, when Christ came to earth. The last installment of God's program began in Christ's lifetime. In these last days there will come times of difficulty, for, because, people will be lovers of self. We call that having a strong self-image. Lovers of money, we call them yuppies. Proud, I'm making positive confession. Arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Now I know that's shocking in one sense because you go, well no, that's just a rite of passage. All teenagers are supposed to be disobedient to their parents, that's how the game is played. News flash, around the world, disobedient teenagers is not a huge deal it's in mostly Western countries that have rebelled against Christianity and against the Bible, and God's given over their kids to rebellion. Most of the cultures of the world are the, what the West might call less sophisticated cultures. Kids don't have an attitude of their parents. They grow up with their parents, working with their parents, wanting to run the shop, wanting to run the farm. They're not in rebellion like we see in the West. They're ungrateful. They're unholy. They're heartless. You can't appease them. They slander others they 're without self-control they 're brutal they don 't love the good they 're treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. note this: having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power i 'm a Christian no christianity doesn 't change your life it 's just something you adopt, like being an american or or uh, you know choosing to live in a certain city it 's just part of your life but Christianity doesn't really change you. It's not a supernatural thing that controls your life. It's just something that you adopt. Holding to a form of godliness but denying its its power. Paul's not talking about what the culture is going to be like. He says this is what churchmen will be like in these last days. He says avoid such people. Holding to a form of godliness but denying its power. Have you ever talked to somebody at work who professed to be a Christian? And then as as soon as you mention something about, well, I don't believe that, I don't do that. Of course you don't. You hold to a form of godliness, but you deny the saving supernatural power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But go on to the next chapter, chapter 4. Paul talks more about what's going to be happening. He says, the time, verse 3, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. The The phrase sound teaching means healthy teaching, that which will promote spiritual health. People will not endure healthy, sound teaching, but they're going to accumulate teachers who tell them what they want to hear. Right, I want to be healthy. I want to be wealthy. I want to be rich. I don't want problem. I want this. I want that. Uh, I don't want God to run my life, and I don't want to jump through his hoops, but it's okay if he wants to jump through mine. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. What solution can we learn from what we said earlier and apply to our situation? In the opening illustration, we learned that sanctified common sense led Isaac to go back to the wells that had provided clean water, the sustained life, promoted their herds, promoted their families, go to the places that have been life-sustaining in the past and retrieve them. We heard Jeremiah say, return to the old paths, look for the old paths and walk in them. The tried and true doctrines and Practices of the Christians of the past. We don't need a new gospel for a new millennium. We don't need a new gospel for a new century. We need the old gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God into salvation to anyone who believes. We heard Paul warn young Timothy about the kind of people who would be attending churches in the last days. But Paul does tell Timothy in other places in 2 Timothy. What he's to do positively. He says in chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, he says, Follow the pattern of the sound words, the healthy words that you've heard from me. Follow the pattern, template. Ladies, you know what a pattern is when you're going to make a dress and you buy a pattern and you cut out the material in the shape of the pattern. A template, a blueprint. Follow the blueprint, follow the pattern of the sound words, the health giving words that you've heard from me, apostolic teaching. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Part of what we're to do is guard what's been entrusted to us. You have a tremendous heritage here. It's not your job to know church history. I get that. I did study church history, and we live in one of the worst times in the history of America in terms of what the status is of truth and where the churches are at. But you live in a very dangerous time, but God's blessed you and put you in a sound church. I realize the last year has been hard but God's preserved you and you're a church that has a good foundation and, you know, you just sprinkle the Holy Spirit on good truth and you'll all be like a chia pet. you all just blossom and grow and we'll look forward to good things in the future. Later in 2 Timothy 3, this is what Paul says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. For teaching, this is what you ought to do. For reproof, you're doing that wrong. For correction, this is how to do it right. For training in righteousness, you want to be a man of God, a woman of God, you want to grow? For training in righteousness that the man of God, and specifically Paul's telling Timothy, the man of God is a technical word in the Bible. It's for a prophet or an apostle or an apostle's assistant. The man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. A faithful pastor needs to be a man of the word. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. What's he to do? Preach the word. Be ready in season. This is when you would expect a harvest to come. And out of season. Whoa, this doesn't seem like a right kind of time, but it's an opportunity and I'll do it. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, keep preaching the gospel, fulfill your ministry. In the light of the kind of bad people who will be attending churches, Paul says, You do the right thing. You hold to the scriptures. You teach the scriptures. You guard the scriptures. Along the lines that I've just shown you, the best of the evangelical and reformed seminaries today are busy doing retrieval. Now there's a dog called a golden retriever. Why is it called a retriever? Because if something's thrown out there, they go get it and bring it back. That's called retrieving. What does retrieval mean? Well, if you went to reformed theological seminary in Orlando, Florida, or in Charlotte, North Carolina, or our Reformed Baptist Seminary here in Fort Worth, or Kansas City, or schools in other cities around the country. They're busy doing retrieval. What do I mean by that? They're not looking for new doctrines and new angles in order to make things exciting or new. They're returning to the old paths. They're not looking for a new gospel for a new millennium. They're not looking for a new teaching for a new century. They're saying, what has fed the church and prospered it for 2,000 years? How did we get here? How did God bless for 2,000 years and get us here? So the wells that were dug by Augustine and Athanasius and Anselm and Luther and Calvin and Tyndale and the Puritans and other giants of the past These wells are being recovered. These men weren't dummies. They had insights into scripture. Let's not look for the latest thing that comes out of Harvard Divinity School or the last thing that comes out of the University of Chicago Divinity School or Yale Divinity School like in the video. My brother goes to Yale Divinity School. Sorry for him. Anyway, they're looking to the best men of the past who have dug wells for us that we need to unstop and look to again. Did you know the original associations of Baptists in America were not only Calvinistic, they were confessional. The very first Baptist association was in Rhode Island. It held to the 1689 Baptist Confession. The second association in America was the Philadelphia Association. It held to the 1689 Baptist Confession. The Charleston Association in the South, same thing. The founders of the SBC were all members of churches that held to the 1689 Baptist Confession. The number of Baptist and Baptist churches exploded during the Great Awakening and they're mostly Calvinistic. And in Georgia and South Carolina, with which I'm most familiar, they were almost all confessional. We want pastors to do and teach what the Word says. We want to find pastors who don't listen to psychologists or sociologists or business gurus, but we want pastors who will teach us what the Word of God says. I've chosen to spend whatever productive years I have left working with young men to be pastors and preachers of the gospel, of the word of God. And it's becoming novel. There are churches you can go to and they hardly will mention any scripture. They won't preach from the Bible necessarily. They'll take some point out of thin air and they'll preach on it. You won't sing songs based on hymns, based on the scriptures. The scriptures aren't read in the service. It's just terrible. But I want to dedicate whatever time I have left to train young men who will do these things. You know, when the, for, the Charles Spurgeon began in the middle of the 19th century and preached until 1892 when he died. He was called the last of the Puritans. But then God raised up a man that few people have heard of, A.W. Pink, who wrote all kinds of books. He was called the last of the Puritans. He died in 1952. Martin Lloyd-Jones began preaching in 1927 and continued preaching until 1968 and he was called the last of the Puritans. And all these men had great impact for God because they knew the great God, They knew that what the wells of salvation had fed the church for 2,000 years, and they drank from the same wells, and God blessed them. What was the largest Protestant church in Europe in the 19th century? Charles Spurgeon's church. What was the largest Protestant church in Great Britain in the 20th century? Martin Lloyd-Jones' church. Which churches had more men than women attending, which is a novelty? Usually it's four more women than men. Both these men had more men than women attending because they had a great God. I knew a single guy who was 31, and he told me, I've been in church since I was a kid, but I never knew why I should respect or fear God until I came to the doctrines of grace and Calvinism. And now I see why I should respect God and treat him as holy, holy, holy. And I have my backside in church every week because I need to be there. In Acts 17:6 may be said today, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I'm encouraged for this church. You have the word of God to convert people, to gather people, to teach them, to build up the saints. You have the Baptist confession of faith. It's served Baptists well for 400 years and it's built upon what the early church fathers said and what was recovered at the time of the Reformation and it's full of great truth. You're about to have a pastor who's been trained in the scriptures, who holds to the confession of faith. He's a called man, a gifted man, a trained man, and he's a set aside man. What's not to like about that? You have faithful churchmen here. As I said, I'm getting to know most of your names now. You have a deacon. Now, I admit that Dennis is kind of weird, but I'm weird too, so that's why we get along so well. But anyway, you have a faithful deacon. You have other mature believers to aid the pastor in building up this church. You have like-minded confessional churches around you who are willing to help you. The future for this assembly is as bright as the promises of God. Let me close briefly with three or four concrete steps. Pray for your pastor. You're about to have a new pastor. Keep praying for him until he's an old pastor. Love your pastor. According to Ephesians 4, he's God's gift to this congregation. Support your pastor financially. Give him the time he needs to study and pray. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles were trying to deal with everything. Imagine a church of 100 people and suddenly 3,000 converts show up and you've got all these baby diapers to change and all these needs that have to be met. And so they're just running around chasing their tail. And finally, some people complain they're not being attended to. And the apostles look and they deal with them. They say, you know, it's not right that we should leave off prayer and the study of the word, the preaching of the word in order to wait on tables. There's nothing wrong with waiting on tables. People need to be fed. But that's not our calling. So we want to have the time to do what God's called us to do. We're going to appoint men who will be deacons to see to the distribution of the food. But we're going to give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Give your pastor that. Pay attention to your pastor as he preaches to you the word of God. God's called him to be faithful, to preach to you, and God calls you to be faithful, to listen, and heed. And stay in the old paths and never leave them. And we'll all meet again in heaven. I hope to come back some other time just to encourage you, but I'm very encouraged for where you all are at. You're at a good place. He's kept you together. He's kept you. And uh, I think God's love has been evident on, on this congregation. Let's pray. Father, these people have been faithful today to hear from your word from what seemed like an innocent illustration in the life of Isaac in the Old Testament. But we know what wells are like, and if you go west of Fort Worth, things get really dry really quick. And You get into New Mexico and Arizona and Southern California and Nevada, and if there's no water, there's life. It's brown and gray and purple and dead. But if there's water, there's life. There's vibrancy. A farm or a ranch or a town, or a civilization can grow up around it. We need the pure water of the word. We need the meat of the word. We need the milk of the word. Would you make the new pastor here to be a man of the word who feeds the flock from the scriptures week in and week out, who helps them to understand the theology of the confession, who shepherds their souls. Give grace to this young man. Give grace to this congregation. May we pinch ourselves with wonder in the years to come that you were so good to us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.